0: Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to First Samuel Eight. As I have gotten older throughout various years I've been given different positions of responsibility and authority. When I was in college I was given some responsibility and authority, uh, a leadership position there uh, working for the college and then as I transitioned to getting my master's degree I was given uh, greater authority still and then I became a pastor and and, and more authority still and and, um, became a parent and the inherent authority that comes with with being a parent and and, and the leadership and all of these positions. And as I've gone through these various levels of, of authority and of responsibility, one of the things that has become ever increasingly clear to me is how important my example is. There's a lot of things that, in a position of authority, you can say. You can tell people, this is the way things ought to be. This is the way you ought to do them. This is what you should do. But the old adage goes, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Many of us have understood the reality that the do as I say, not as I do culture doesn't resound very well with people. That... As authority, and as, uh, in, in a position of authority, or as leaders, we need to lead by example. That we need to have people in a position where you say, follow me as I do right. And then they do right because you do right. This morning, the title of our message is Excusing Rebellion. And what we're going to see this morning is the example of a man who loves the Lord who did many great things for the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 8, his ministry is not even close to being complete. And yet he's going to have a blind spot in his life. And we're going to focus on 1 Samuel 8 for the next several weeks. And this is going to be a foundational message, laying the foundation for the reality that this man's blind spot was a part of a... Circumstance, a situation that excused rebellion in the lives of the nation of Israel. And it's going to be an example for us to not allow our lives to be the same, to not live our lives in such a way that our example and those that look up to us is an excuse for others to rebel against God. At the end of chapter 7, In 1 Samuel, which we talked about two weeks ago, we learned that from the time that Samuel began to judge Israel, 20 years after the Ark of the Covenant had been in Kirjath-Jerim, he judged Israel for the remaining days of his life. Jewish teaching, Jewish tradition states that Samuel was a judge in Israel for 13 years, 11 on his own, and then two after Saul had become king. This is possible if we think about it. Samuel was a young man when the Lord first spoke to him. We don't know how how young that was. And there's no mention of how old Samuel was when the Lord called him to be a prophet. There's no mention of how old he was when the ark was taken. We know that from the time that the ark was taken to the time that he was called to be a judge, there were 20 years. So we, we really can't know how old he was or how long prior to his days of a judge he had lived upon the earth. However, 13 years in my mind seems somewhat brief. I don't typically think of it that way. I think of him as having been a judge for much longer than that. There's nothing in the text that would confirm one way or another, but that's what Jewish tradition states. Possibly about 13 years that he was a judge as a whole over Israel. As we transition into chapter 8, which is where we'll be looking for the next several weeks, Samuel is now old. Verse 1 tells us, And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. He's old. He recognizes that his days might be short, that they might be coming to an end. He doesn't know how many days he has left. And so he makes his sons judges over the people, performing the same ministry and the same spiritual and legal leadership that he had performed so faithfully for his years. It was commendable that Samuel had enough forethought, we might say, to seek some security and some stability for Israel after his death. We know that Samuel likely... um, Well, we know... Samuel likely did as well. We know it from the text that historically Israel would would go through this what we call a cycle of apostasy, right? In the judges we saw this regularly that Israel would fall away from the Lord and the Lord would allow them to go into captivity because of their sin and then when they called to the Lord for, for help and for For uh, deliverance, the Lord would raise up a judge who would call them unto repentance. And that judge would call them unto repentance. They would respond to that call. And then the judge would lead them physically out of captivity. And as long as the judge lived upon the earth, the people of Israel typically did all right. But the scriptures tell us that when these judges would die quite regularly, there would be a, a, a falling away that the nation of Israel would go back, they would, they would not have leadership, and they would go back into their paganism, into their false teaching, into their false worship, that they would fall away from their walk with the Lord. And there were a couple of judges in the history of the nation that sought to appoint their children as the next judge to try to uh, alleviate this transition And throughout the scriptures, we see that none of them were successful in continuing the judgeship for the judgeship was not meant to be a permanent office. It was meant to be temporary for the sake of bringing Israel back to them. Now, Samuel had two sons. We see in verse 2 that his sons' names were Joel and Abiah. And Samuel made them judges in Beersheba, and the Scriptures tell us in verse 3, "...his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre," that would be money, "...and took bribes and perverted judgment." So uh, these, these guys turned from judges to politicians, right? They, they, they turned into a group of people that went for the money and went for the bribes and, and perverted judgment in order to, to, to get what was best for them. These men became corrupt. And like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas, Samuel had failed to do with his sons what he had tried so deeply to do with the people, which was to lead them into obedience. And this is not uncommon for ministers. Even today, that in a minister's attempts to lead his church, to lead his ministry into godliness, he fails to give attention to, to the children that he's raising and to to lead them into godliness. This coupled with the inherent pressure upon the children of ministers to act, to perform for the church, to act perfect, and sometimes even the expectation among the ministry that the pastor's kids would somehow be perfect. These kids often find a way to look godly, to play a part without ever actually having to have any love for God. And often they even grow up resenting church, resenting God's word because of the compulsion that was placed upon them to play a part, to live something that was not them. They become seasoned hypocrites. They put on the pastor's kid facade when they need to. They look the part of the godly child, but inside they're a total wreck. And the Bible teaches us that inevitably, in some way, shape, or form, what's on the inside always comes to the outside and eventually it is exposed Eli had this problem with Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, He was a a leader, a a priest, a man of God, and yet his children, for some reason, uh, were lost. And now we see Samuel in the same boat. He's a leader, a man of God, and yet his children have turned aside from the truth. They have taken this position of the judge, but they are perverting judgment for money. They are perverting judgment for bribes. As a personal aside, let me just state that as a minister, this is one of those things that, um, when the Lord called me to ministry, was very concerning to me. And the reason why it's so concerning is because we see a trend. We see this trend in Scripture. If you look at Eli, if you look at Samuel, if you look at David, you see many men who loved the Lord, but their children didn't turn out so well. Men who in their zeal for doing the work of the Lord, lost their children. The possibility of my losing my children because of my devotion to the ministry was so sickening, it almost kept me out of the ministry, in fact. But, and just as an, as an aside, knowing that this threat is very real, that one day every minister must contend with this balance between ministry and family, uh, you as a church can help by praying for me. And certainly as well, um, by not expecting your pastor and his children to be perfect. Uh, By pointing out spiritual red flags that you see in the pastor's kids just like you would for any other children. And this is very important because the idea that a minister would yield the responsibility of ruling his household well in order to focus upon the ministry is not pleasing to the Lord. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, the qualifications for a minister, we see the scriptures tell us this, that the minister is one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, this passage does not inherently mean that if a pastor's children don't grow up to be faithful servants of the Lord, he is disqualified, because this is speaking of as they are in subjection in his household. But it does expect that a father have his house in order with children who are subject unto him, having children um, that are, are in his control, children that are out of control, children that are walking in rebellion while under the direct authority of their parents places a man outside of the biblical qualifications for ministry. And so this is a very important thing. As we look at the trend, we see it in Eli, we see it in Samuel, know that the trend is is, is a reality. Pray for your pastor as he seeks to lead his children into godliness as well and seeks to balance ministry with family. Now, As we look at this qualification here in uh, 1 Timothy, it's a qualification for a pastor. It wasn't inherently a qualification for an Old Testament judge or for a high priest. So we're not going to do some eisegesis this morning and impose the New Testament on the Old Testament. But the reality of an unchanging God lends me uh, to the conclusion, gives me confidence to say that Eli and Samuel both failed in a very important aspect of their responsibility before God in that they did not lead their children properly unto the Lord and even more so in that seeing that their children were not following the Lord they placed them in positions of spiritual leadership. We talked about this already with Eli, they honored he honored his children above honoring God. And what we see further as we return back to the text in 1 Samuel 8 is that these men did not just fail as we said to teach their children, we see that they put them in positions of spiritual influence. The sad irony of this situation, perhaps you've caught it already, as we consider this deeper, is when we consider the method that God used to tell Eli of his judgment. Remember that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, God came to Eli through a man of God. And the man of God said, you have sinned before God because you've allowed your children to be in the priesthood. You have honored your children above me. I will cast you out of the priesthood. But then it, remember in 1 Samuel 3, when God is calling Samuel to become a prophet of God, the first message that God called Samuel to proclaim was a message to Eli. And the message was found, is found in 1 Samuel 3, 13 and 14, and it says this, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. Therefore have I sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. Samuel hears directly from the voice of God that the judgment of God upon Eli's lineage would be a direct result of his refusal to restrain his children, his refusal to cast his children out of the priesthood for their wickedness, his honoring his children above God. And here we have Samuel. A generation removed from Eli's failure with Hophni and Phinehas. A failure whereby he became the mouthpiece of God in judgment against Eli. And now Samuel's children are taking bribes and perverting judgment for filthy lucre. And that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it is that in the midst of their perversion, Samuel is still allowing them to be judges in Israel. In a similar way that Eli's sons had perverted the priesthood, wearying the people, making them hate the law of God, Samuel's sons were perverting justice, wearying the people, making them hate the office of the judge and of justice. An office which God created with the purpose of delivering God's people from their enemies and calling them unto repentance and unto obedience unto God. And just one more thing about this before we move on. We'll see in just a moment. Remember, Samuel is a man that loves God. Samuel is a man that is indeed still being used of God. We're not saying here that Samuel was a bad man. Eli was a man who loved God. Pastors who failed to rule their households aren't necessarily bad men or men that don't love God or men that don't love God's Word. They are imperfect men. And just because they failed as a father doesn't mean that they are bad men. Just because they didn't do what was best for Samuel and Eli didn't do what was best for the nation doesn't mean that they could not be used of God or that they weren't followers of God or they did not love God. But what it does mean is that they had a real problem in their relationship with God. No minister is sinless and no minister can do everything perfect. We should not look at Samuel with a judgmental eye or compare ourselves to him to make ourselves feel superior Eli's failures, Samuel's failures, can be our lesson. They help us avoid the pitfalls that they fell into. It doesn't make us better or worse than them, and it is foolish for us to spend our time comparing ourselves against ourselves. We're all sinners. Whether we speak of Samuel or Eli in the Old Testament or some minister In the New Testament, the only standing any man has ever had before God is the standing that he has received by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. So, we're not here to cast stones at Samuel or cast stones at Eli, but by that same token, of course, we do recognize that Eli, his sins had dire consequences upon his family and his nation. Samuel's sin will have consequences upon the nation. And in a similar way, when a pastor fails to do what the Lord has called him to do, it should not be a surprise to us, nor should it be a problem for us to believe that he has thus disqualified himself from ministry. He simply has failed to meet the divine qualification of a certain position, and he needs to set that position aside so that he can focus on the things that the Lord would have him to focus on. So as we continue in 1 Samuel 8, the drama continues in verses 4 and 5. The Scriptures tell us, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came unto Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons, not walk in the, uh, thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. The elders of Israel, the leaders, the representatives of the will of the people come together and they come unto Samuel and they state really the obvious. Samuel, you're an old guy now. You're getting old. They're not trying to be rude. They're just stating the obvious. You're getting old. Your ministry will soon be over. You will die at some point in the future. And your children are not a good replacement for you. They are perverting justice. They are not doing what they ought to do. We're not pleased with them as judges as we were pleased with you And so they took it upon themselves to demand another solution to the problem of leadership in Israel. But as much as they attempted to shroud their request, to make it look simply like a solution to leadership in Israel, as much as their request might even sound logical, you might say virtuous, their true intention was quite obvious and Samuel saw through their intention very quickly. They say at the end of verse 5, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel, let us be like the other nations. Samuel, give us a king. Their request was anything but harmless. Their request was anything but virtuous. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Let's continue in the text. Verse 6. They say, uh, it says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Verse 6 tells us that the request was greatly displeasing to Samuel. He saw in it a problem. And the problem that he saw was a rebellion problem. And he prayed to the Lord for wisdom. God, how should I handle this problem? Now, from a purely human perspective, God's answer that we're going to see in just a moment uh, is going to confuse us a little bit. But we'll look even more next week about why God did this and, and, and the character trait of God that's going to be exhibited, what we call the permissive will of God. And as we consider these things, it'll be sufficient for us this week to remind ourselves that God is not a man. God became a man. He took on flesh, but he doesn't think like a man. He doesn't act like a man. We can't take the way a human would think, impose it upon God, and base our expectations for how God should act upon how a human might act. In fact, we we cite it all the time, but let's just formalize it this morning. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 tells us this. God speaking through Isaiah, He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts... Than your thoughts. We know that God is a sovereign God. We know that He holds the times and the seasons in His hand. We know that He is ultimately in control. We do not debate these things, but the thing that is a struggle for us as believers sometimes is to remind ourselves that, with God being in control, He might do things in a way that we don't expect. That He might bring about the the end that we're praying for and hoping for in a way that we weren't quite expecting it to come about. We, have in, we always have in our minds, right, scenarios. God, this is the end. This is the end that I'm praying for. And as we start praying for that end, we start erecting the scenario of how God is going to get us to that end, right? Okay, God, I'm praying for this, and you're going to get me through. do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then I'll be here. And God might have another way. He might answer your prayer of getting you to that end. But He might take you a different way to get there. And as we start on that alternate path, we say, God, what are you doing? This is not right. I don't understand. But that's okay. Because His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Our feeble attempts to put God into a box of our expectations or actions is nothing more than stripping God in our minds of His divine wisdom and trying to fit Him into our wisdom. And notice how God responds in 1 Samuel chapter 8 to Samuel's request. It says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day wherein they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. So God is hes troubled by their request. We can see it in his response that this is not something that he's pleased with. But he says, let them have their king. They've asked for it. Let them have their king. Now in my mind, I'd say, well, wait a minute. If these were my people and I already gave them uh, five books of the Bible telling them how they were to react and act toward me, telling them that I was going to rule over them, telling them that I would be in charge, and they come up to one of my servants and say, let us have a king. You know what I'd do? I'd probably just rain fire down from heaven. But God says, no, no, no. Let them have their king. Let them have their king. See, because they have a free will. I'm not going to compel them they want their king, they can have their king. And this is what we call the permissive will of God. It will be the topic of our sermon next week. He tells Samuel, don't be concerned. They didn't really reject you, Samuel. And they're saying that they're rejecting your sons, and for, for good reason. But, um, but they're using that as an excuse, Samuel. Your sons have become an excuse for them to rebel against me. Your sons have become the scapegoat that has been lifted up for them to say, see, your sons aren't walking in the Lord. We want a leader. Give us a king. They'll finally get what they want, which is to reject God, and they'll use Samuel's sons as the excuse to do it. This didn't surprise God. In fact, God says that this is exactly what the nation has been doing since the very day that he brought them out of Egypt. From the day that their redemption had begun, the nation had never fully yielded themselves unto God to be their king. The people were, above all things, defined by near constant rebellion. So God says, listen to them, give them what they want. If they want to reject me and have a king over them, let them have their king. So how is it then, we ask? How is it, That asking for a king is synonymous here with rejecting God's rule over them. How is desiring a consistent human authority over this nation of Israel a rejection of God's authority? And we think about this, and it really doesn't parallel to us, right? I mean, we have a president. In the minds of a properly adjusted Christian, the president, his office, and the authority of government over us in no way contradicts with our loyalty and love to God. We can have a president. We can uh, follow a country's rule. We can follow the authorities over us and, and still not lose our uh, um, loyalty to our service to God. So there's not necessarily an inherent contradiction, right, between human authority And divine authority. So why in the case of Israel is this a problem? Why is them asking for a a line of kings? A king that would have succession from father to son. A family of rulers. Why is this such a problem? Well, since the days of the Exodus, Israel had been set up for what we call a theocracy. A theocracy is a form of government where the people are directly ruled by God. Some people would charge that Christians today are trying to make the United States a theocracy. Nothing, you know, n- n- but, but, but there, there's nothing like a theocracy that we've ever seen similar to what Israel had. We've seen other countries, other nations in history where they were ruled by their priests more than they were ruled by um, other leaders. We see the time of the Dark Ages where the Catholic Church had so much sway Uh, where the Pope had almost as much power or more power sometimes than kings and of governments. And what the Catholic Church was attempting to do there was erect a theocracy uh, where they said that God was ruling. The problem with all of these different times in history is that there was no God behind them. It was just a man at the top calling himself a representative of God who wasn't a representative of God, who was manipulating the people by saying God was behind it. But Israel was intended to be a true Theocracy. It was intended to be a form of government where Jehovah God was literally the one who ruled. Where they would literally go to God with their questions and God would rule on their behalf. Where they would literally trust their well-being and everything that they had to God and God would provide. They wouldn't go to a man to ask for provision. They would go to God to ask for provision for, for safety from their enemies, for, for uh, victory in the day of battle. And God would provide it because He was their King. The law was to be the definitive rule by which Israel lived their lives. The priests were to be the mediator between God and His people, teaching the people God's expectations and atoning for the sins of the people against God through animal sacrifice. The prophets were meant to be the mouthpiece of God, declaring the word of the Lord, calling the people back to God when they wandered away from His rule. And all the way back to Exodus 19, following the people's completion of their deliverance from Egypt, the people set God up by a mutual covenant to be their direct ruler, their king, if you will. In Exodus 19, 9, we see God call upon Moses to sanctify the people because he was going to speak to them directly. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And then we skip ahead to Exodus chapter 20, and God is physically speaking in a cloud and in a fire and through an earthquake to the people. And the scriptures tell us God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And he continues to give them the Ten Commandments, the divine law by which they were to live their lives. It was this law by which God governed His people. He was calling them to place themselves under the law and by placing himself, themselves under His law, they were placing themselves under His government. He would be their king. They would be His people. And take note, God did not demand this covenant. God asked them to enter into the covenant on the basis of His goodness and redeeming them from Egypt. Because I purchased you from Egypt... God says, I'm asking you to make me your king. And then he gave them the conditions of his rule, the blessings and the cursings by which he would rule. And the scriptures tell us in Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 and 8, and he took the book of the covenant, that's Moses, and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said we will do and be obedient and Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words so god gave the conditions he gave the 10 commandments he gave the blessings he gave the cursings and he said these are the conditions of my rule and israel said we accept the conditions of god's rule we will enter into this covenant and Moses said okay and then he took the blood of a of a of a lamb and he sprinkled it on the people Ratifying the covenant between God and Israel. And so they entered into this theocracy. And on that day, Jehovah God became the king in Israel. We looked a couple of weeks ago at the blessings and the cursings of Deuteronomy 28. The blessing on a nation that obeyed the Lord. The cursings on the nation that disobeyed the Lord. And God promised that if they obeyed, He would fight their battles. He would provide for their needs. He would be a king to them in every respect. He would take care of everyone and everything they could possibly require to live a comfortable life. He was their king. Even in the times of the judges, These men who led Israel, these judges understood full well their limitations and the limitations of their authority. They were not to rule the people as an absolute monarch. They were to guide the people into God. They were to be, as you could say, the tip of the spear. Not being Israel's wisdom, not being Israel's power or Israel's leadership, but rather leading Israel back to God's wisdom, God's power, God's authority, God's leadership. And if this whole setup sounds familiar, don't think you're crazy. The relationship between the nation of Israel and Jehovah God is very similar to the relationship that we have as individuals with Christ. It's not the same, but it's similar. Israel was to have no direct or overriding human authority because God was their authority in much the same way that God has ordained no direct and overriding human authority over the believer, spiritually speaking, because the Word of God is our authority. The judges would be raised up to shepherd the people into God's authority in much the same way pastors are raised up to shepherd God's people into God's authority. Just as a pastor has no direct overriding or human authority over God's people, um, or the judge didn't, nor does a pastor, have any authority, uh, direct authority over God's people, his authority is simply to lead them into Christ. Now, this didn't stop the people from trying to make judges their king in the past. In fact, we see in Judges chapter 8, that the people tried to make Gideon their king. Do you remember that? Scriptures tell us, then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's sons also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. God is king, Gideon says. And Gideon knew better than to try to take a greater authority than what God had given to him. Gideon had been appointed by God to guide the people back to Jehovah, not to guide them to himself. One of the amazing things about God, however, is the fact that every aspect of Israel's decision-making, their rebellion against God, was foretold to them in the book of Deuteronomy. God foretold that they would ask for a king. God foretold that they would rebel. God foretold, in fact, that they would reject him, that they would be led into captivity, that he would restore them from captivity, and that he would send a Messiah. All of these things God promised in Deuteronomy. And we find the promise of a king in Deuteronomy 17. And because of this promise, God actually gave them regulations concerning this king. Look at Deuteronomy 17, and it will be up on the screen there, beginning in verse 14. When thou art come to the land unto which the Lord thy God giveth thee, this is God speaking, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Wow. That's exactly what they said in 1 Samuel 8, right? Give us a king that we may be like the other nations that are around us. God says, When you do this, because you will, Israel, thou shalt not in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shalt... Uh, excuse me. Thou shalt in any wise, set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn... Not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold, and it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read there in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So here we see that God made provision for this king, giving instructions concerning the kind of man that he should be and how he should rule the people. Well, pastor, does this mean that God, in fact, was willing to have a king, that God did want them to have a king? Well, not necessarily. God also gave them specific commandments as to what would happen when they fell into idolatry. He gave them specific commandments about what would happen when they were, when they were sent into captivity. And so Deuteronomy 17, 18, 19, 20, it's not an expression inherently of God's will. It was, it was as much prophetic as to what was going to happen in the future. There's a debate as to whether or not God ever intended to have a king over Israel. Uh, we'll cover that debate at another time. So here the nation finds itself, some 500 years after Israel had covenanted with God that He would rule over them. 450 years or so after God had told them that they would rebel against Him, that they would take a king so that they could be like other nations around them. And here they are, fulfilling God's promise, fulfilling God's prophecy, asking for a king, rejecting God as their final authority over them, and desiring to be like the nations about them. Over the next two weeks, we're going to consider the two facets of this rebellion. The first, of course, that they asked for a king, and we'll talk about the permissive will of God. The second being that they desired to be like other nations, rejecting the unique and exclusive relationship that they had with Jehovah. But as we close today, giving you a foundation for that which Israel has done, I'd like us to turn our hearts and our minds back to Samuel and back to his children. The heart of man is inherently predisposed toward rebellion, isn't it? Our hearts are predisposed to rebel. It's baked into us to rebel. The world around us tells us that we're all naturally very good people. That, that, that we're, we're naturally um, people of virtue and of morality. But if history or the text of Scripture tells us anything, it's that humans are inherently rebellious. In fact, Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In the New Testament, Paul summarized it in Romans chapter 3 and he summarized it this way beginning in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is Uh, They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the natural condition of man. Parents, when you have a child who is born into your family, this is the natural condition of their heart. As you go out into your schools, into your workplaces, you go shopping and you interact with unbelievers, this is the natural condition of their heart. The natural disposition of mankind is toward abject rejection of God's authority and of God's word. Now, that being said, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have come to the point where you have recognized that you're a sinner, you've recognized that your sin has separated you from God, and you have humbled yourself before God, believing on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, then you have by the very definition of being born again, rejected your heart of rebellion in deference to the teaching of God's word. You have recognized your heart of rebellion. You have recognized your separation from God. You've recognized that you cannot save yourself from the power of sin or from the consequences of sin. And so you have humbled yourself before God to do for you through the cross of Jesus Christ what you cannot do for yourself. And this requires a degree, as we've mentioned, of personal humility, of rejection of self that is inherently unnatural to the human condition. That's why it's a work of God. It's enabled only by the Holy Spirit of God in the hearts of those who have exercised faith in Christ. Samuel was a man of faith as revealed in the Word of God. He was a man who had received the word of God, who had accepted the revealed word of God. Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh yet. He could not accept Christ. That's not for his age. That's for our age. And yet, to the degree that God had revealed himself through his word, Samuel had accepted it. And therefore, uh, as we see in Romans and in Galatians, speaking all the way back to Abraham, they believed God and it was counted unto them for righteousness. But by allowing his children to become unworthy judges... Samuel, maybe even unwittingly, gave the nation of Israel the exact excuse it needed to claim the king that they'd always desired. To bring themselves out from under the direct authority of God and to pursue the rebellion of their own hearts. They asked it in the day of Gideon. Gideon, you be a king over us. Gideon said, no way the Lord rules over you. He saw it, he said, no. No. But in the days of Samuel, the people used his children as an excuse. And the application this morning as we close, was one statement that I'd like us to take with us is this. Rebellion is easy enough. Don't ever provide an excuse for it. Rebellion is easy enough. Don't ever provide an excuse for it. I'm not saying Samuel was responsible for Israel's rebellion, for their desire for a king. In fact, we know this because they'd asked for a king before. But Samuel's failure with his children, coupled with his determination to make them judges, brought Israel to a point where the rebellion that was already in their hearts collided with their disregard for Samuel's sons. The nation loved Samuel, but now Samuel was getting old and because his sons were not men of justice and his sons were not men of equity, because they were not men that followed the word of God, they found the perfect climate in which to demand that which God did not want them to have. The perfect climate to demand a king. And as Christians, particularly any of you who stand in positions of authority or influence or respect, whether it's as a minister or as a parent, or as a mentor, or as a boss, or simply a respected family member. You need to remember that our words and actions will either discourage or encourage obedience or rebellion. In Hebrews 10.24, the Scriptures exhort us to provoke one another unto love and good works. That God expects us to be drawing Love and good works out of people, out of one another by what we say and by how we live. In fact, this is one of the major reasons why the church comes together on any given Sunday. We do so to provoke one another unto love and good works. But if we can encourage one another to do right, naturally we must understand that we can also encourage people, either by word or by example, to do wrong as well and simply what I'd like us to take with us this morning is a little bit of a perspective the message is intended to be foundational for the for the weeks to come but it's also going to draw us I pray into this perspective of searching our own lives as spiritual leaders as parents as mentors to whatever degree we have influence over others and others might look to us and others might look unto our example or listen to what we say, we need to understand that the heart is predisposed toward rebellion and particularly in, say, our children. It is not far-fetched for us to believe that our poor example, regardless of what we're saying, our poor example might give them the impetus they need to push them over into their own rebellion. And by... Extension, our good example might be just what they need to push them toward. Obedience. It's still your child's decision to do right or wrong. Many of them will make decisions for good or ill in spite of us. But if they see you explain away sin, if they see you ignore the teachings of Scripture, if they see... Certain areas where the Bible commands it, but you're just not willing to go there. They might just find in that example compulsion unto their own rebellion. As a pastor, this must always be before my eyes. Each of you is responsible for your own decisions, but as your pastor, a public act of rebellion against God on my part might just be the straw that breaks the back of someone in this room to justify their own rebellion. My public obedience might be just what someone in this room needs to choose to obey yourselves. Regardless of the position that you are in, the message is this. All around us are hearts predisposed toward rebellion. Rebellion is still in our hearts and in the heart of everyone. This rebellion is easy enough to justify as it is. As believers who know the word of God and love the word of God, my simple exhortation this morning is that each of us would not make this rebellion through our words or actions or even inactions easier than it already is to justify in the lives of those who we influence. Let us as God's people live above the carnal appetites of our flesh. Pursue the very best representation of obedience and submission to the Word of God. Let us live in such a way that even if our children or our neighbors or our family or our coworkers don't ask us what is right or what is wrong, our integrity and love for God is the natural testimony to encourage them unto the right. That as the unbelieving world looks at us, they would not look at us as a church and say, look what they do. I must be okay doing fill in the blank. That we would not encourage the predisposed rebellion in the hearts of those who see us. We don't control the actions of others, but we do control how we interact with others. And we all know that there's great power in testimony. So let's do everything in our power to lead others unto righteousness. Samuel, through his failure with his children, provided a foothold through which the nation demanded a king. God forbid that we should ever be a foothold to encourage someone else's rebellion. Let's pray together.